0: Um, this is a special shiur, uh, even though we are in the middle of Gitin, as you can see on the top of the page, I've kind of X'd out Gitin because that's the furthest thing from our mind right now. Um, (laughs) and we are celebrating, uh, Roni and Ariella's wedding yesterday. We're celebrating it, but I want to include all of you in the celebration, which is, uh, that, um, giving a special shiur on the topic of Birchat Chatanim, which is often called Sheva Brachot, and we'll see how much of, uh, Appropriate or misnomer, that might be. Uh, In the meantime, I want to mention uh, the wife of a dear friend uh, who's undergoing surgery, Yehudit Miriam, and hope that this sheer also is inspiration for and Mihira, uh, HaChama Mihira, um, and uh, as you'll see, those things actually all coalesce quite well together the nature of the brachat. Uh, What I'd like to explore with you over the course of the next, uh, we'll call it 50 minutes or so, because again, we'll leave a little time for Q&A, but knowing me, I'm probably going to not be able to stick to that on this one, um, is the topic of Birchat Chatanim. Now, Birchat Chatanim is something that, as I mentioned, is often called Sheva Brachot, but uh, we'll see that that's not not such a clear title for it, Uh, and so we'll use that phrase um, uh, throughout the Shi'ur. Uh, Birchat Chatanim is something that we did twice yesterday, once under the chuppah and once after Birchat uh at the festive meal. It's something that Roni and Ariella will have again tonight in Toronto and tomorrow morning in Toronto, and then again Wednesday night in New York and Thursday morning in New York and again Friday night in L.A. and Shabbos afternoon in L.A. and Sudash Sheet in L.A. And by that time, hopefully, somebody will get it right. Um, but... Uh, um, what is Birchat Chatanim? Now, we're going to explore uh several different avenues of the topic. One avenue of the topic is the source for Birchat Chatanim. Where does the whole, whole, whole thing come from? Um, also, what is the the idea behind Birchat Chatanim? Meaning, why do we do it? Why do we do it at the chupa? Why do we do it at the festive meals for seven days? Why don't we do it any longer than that? Why do it for that period of time, et cetera? Uh, also, who does it? Meaning the participation of who uh, generates it, which will all lead us to the bigger question, which was what it's all about. And I'm gonna share with you something at the beginning of this year, because I probably won't get to it at the end, uh, that is uh, kind of special and unique for this occasion. And it's at the very last page of the of the source material. Uh, which is a special bracha that I composed for Roni and Ariella for their wedding. And um, I would say that I gave this to Ariella yesterday at the Badekin, but that's an overstatement because I absolutely lost it. But somehow through the tears and everything else, I got these words out. Um, And uh, and I'll just read the bracha to you. You can see it. This is the bracha that I intend to give to them this Friday night when they're with us for, for Shabbat. And every time that we're together for Shabbat, many Shabbatot, the midrash in Brachit Rabba near the beginning makes the following comment: "Lo ish below isha, below isha below ish." This is politically very incorrect today. Which, by the way, is a very good measuring stick for seeing how accurate it is. The more something is politically incorrect, the more true it usually is. "Lo ish below isha, below isha below ish." There should not be a man without a woman. A woman should be, not be without a man. And the two of them should not be without the Shekhinah between them and with them. And so the following is the bracha. He who enshrined his name on his holy mountain. He should enshrine between the two of you. Love and fellowship, peace and friendship. It doesn't translate as well into English, but it is what it is. And your longing should be found, and the object of your longing should be found, in the small moments and in the very quiet corners. In very small smiles, and with tears of joy. Now, this won't translate well in English, but whither thou goest he shall go, And you lodge where he lodges. In other words, that's the bracha, that's the commitment that Ruth gave to Naomi, but I moved in both directions. Your steps should rhyme together or beat together. And your heart should beat as one. Your tent, you should pitch your tent strongly that it should not wander. And that the rope should not be undone. And in that tent should always be heard between the two of you, forever. Essentially words of love and uh, and great connection. Um and again, it's something that doesn't translate that well. Uh, but um I did that because. Um, every Chatan need a bracha. They need a bracha, they deserve a bracha, they are the objects of bracha, and that's what the shiur is about. And Mirta Shem time permitting, we'll get to a little, as we call it, a vort, at the end, um, on the second to last page, uh, about uh, about the nature of Simchat Chatan and and its role of elating the bride and groom. But now back to our topic. Where does Birchat Chatanim come from? So the uh, Midrash anchors it in the, really, the first words that God ever said to people, ever. Which is, When God created Zachar and Nekevat, in the first chapter of Breshit, he said, let us make man in our image, and he created them male and female. And he blessed them. And by the way, this is the first time that you ever have the word Amar with a target. Throughout Bereshit, you have Vayomer Elohim Vayomer Elohim Yihir, God said, let there be, God said, let there be, and we don't know who he's talking to, which basically means he thought or decided. But here he's actually talking, and he's talking to Zaharna Nekeva, to the male and female that he created, and he says to them, vu, umilu et cetera, which is be fruitful, multiply, fill the land, conquer it, have dominion over the land, have control over everything in the land, etc., that's your mandate. But it's not presented as a mandate or a command as much as a blessing, as a blessing. Now, we understand this phrase halachically to be a command, the command of Puravu, but yet semantically and within the context of Breshid, it's presented really as a bracha. And the Midrash picks up on that in a beautiful illustration, which of course should not be taken literally. HaKadosh Baruch bracha. God took a kosho bracha. A cup of wine, uberchan, and he blessed them. And this these psukim. Imagine God taking a cup and saying, etc. And, and we have the angels acting as the as the shushpin, as the as uh, the friendly assistants of the bride and groom bring them together. Amarav simlai, um me kalot. Now notice the language. That God blesses chatanim. And I wanted to right away be sensitive to the fact that the language is not bevarei chatanim kalot. And the language, and the, and the, the bracha is not called bevarei chatanim kalot. It's not the bracha of grooms and brides. It's the bracha of grooms. I have to figure out why that is. Right? And we're going to see that something that seemed like an opposite sentiment in Chazal. We have to put that together. But ha Baruch baruchu, chatanim um kalot that God blesses the chatanim, the grooms, and he adorns the kalot. There's also to Midrashim, how he dressed um, the woman up and he braided her hair and he brought her to Adam as a beautiful woman, kind of prepared her for a wedding, as it were. So God blesses the chatan and makes the kalah beautiful. And this is part of that longer list. We saw it recently at the end of the first parak of Sotah of all of the acts of chesed that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is credited as doing for people. Uh, when he visits uh, Yitzchak when Avram died and burying Moshe, etc. So among them we have And then it goes through all four of them and it says Where do we know that God is And the answer is Elohim. That's our pasuk that God blessed However, we have yet another source for and that is the the first actual berchat chatanim, but oddly enough it's not berchat chatanim, which is meaning the first marriage that we ever hear about. What's the what's the first marriage we hear about in Tanakh? Not the first, actually that's a different, the first wedding we hear about in Tanakh. First marriage we hear about in Tanakh really is uh, Avram and Sarah, as we assume. What's the first actual wedding that we hear about in Tanakh? Yaakov, Yaakov in, in the one one jump Sorry. earlier, one jump Yitzhak earlier, is Yitzchak and Rivka. Right. So we hear about that actually in two stages. We hear about it at the second stage, when Rivka comes with the slave, and the slave tells Yitzchak everything that happened. Yitzchak brings her into the tent, and he loves her, and he and he has her as his wife. But beforehand, when the family commits to letting her go, and they give her a bracha, and this is the bracha. We don't hear about a bracha when Yitzchak gets married. Well, we hear a bracha when Rivka goes off to get married, which is not brachat chatanim, if you think about it. It's a bracha of arusot, if you will, a bracha of betrothed maidens, which is rivka This is the bracha that the family says to Rivka as they're going, and we assume that this was a common bracha in the area, and they were saying it to her. Notice there's no names in this. Our sister you should become for tens of thousands, myriads, meaning you should have many, many kids and grandchildren, et cetera, and your descendants should conquer their enemy's gate. In other words, they should be successful and numerous and powerful and uh, and in charge, as it were. All right, so this seems to be another source that we will see later on that this is seen as a source of even though oddly enough, there's no in the picture here. The Chatan is hanging out near Beersheba waiting for the camels to arrive with his wife that he may or may not know about is coming. There's yet a third piece which Chazal see as possibly being a source of Berchat Uh It's tossed about in the Sugyat in the middle of the first quote. And that is a story that we just read really a week, uh, about nine days ago, which is when we read Megilat Rut. And in, in Megilat Rut, if you recall, the, the whole plot, is really about Ruth getting married. Now, the plot's about a number of things, and ultimately it's really about the land of Elimelech being redeemed along with Ruth and restoring Elimelech's name, but the, the immediate and more cognizant plot that's going on is the marriage of Ruth to Boaz. And so on the night on the threshing floor, when Ruth literally throws herself at Boaz's feet, uh, and and wants Boaz to marry her, but she connects it to Giula. So Boaz says, "Then we got to play by the rules, and we got to see if the first goel who has right ref, ref, first refusal doesn't want to marry you, then I'll marry you." He commits to that. And here we go. We see in the beginning of the fourth parak, Boaz goes to the gate, and the never-to-be-named goel, whose name is blotted out and is called Plode Amoni, shows up, and Boaz has him sit down. And then, he gets 10 elders together, and they all sit down, and then he negotiates, and he tells the Goel, Naomi is selling the field, it belonged to our relative Elimelech, do you want to redeem it? And the Goel says, I'll redeem it, and then he says, okay, you want to redeem it, you want to go all the way, redeem Ruth also, and it's marry her, so that you can have a child with her on the land of Elimelech, so that Elimelech's name should not disappear, and... Uh, and not be forgotten And the goel says can't do it He backs out And they do the shoe thing Whatever that may mean Unclear And then Boaz turns to The congregated uh, Looks like the whole town of Beit B'l- Lachem Is there And he and he presents a, a very technical legal formula You are all witnesses That I have bought all the, the land That belongs to Elimelech from Naomi And Root in order to have a child on the land, and so his name should not be erased, etc. You're all witnesses. And now, watch what they say. Pazuk Yeralef, in the uh, source source 4. That's the end of the legal part of it. They all say, okay, we're witnesses. And that's the way it's that. That's an inclusio that presents all of the the information to which they're attesting. They all say one word, Edim. And then they do the following. This is the bracha I gave to Ariella yesterday at the Vodekan, or before I gave the one on the last page. Uh, God should make this woman who comes into your house, and this is clearly the formula bracha given in Beit Lechem at a wedding, like Rachel and Leah. There's something quite quite way, astounding about that because we are in Beit Lechem Yehuda, and the tribe that uh, controls Beit Lechem is Yehuda. And who does ima, if you remember, was Le'ah. And nonetheless, when they give the blessing at weddings there, they bless that the bride should be like Rachel Valeah, Le'ah, because they recognize that Rachel was the prime mother and the prime wife, really, in that family. Asher uh, Baruchta and Beit Yisrael, so she should be like Rachel and Le'ah. Uh, I don't know if this is where the um, lyricists of Vidal on the Roof got the idea. May make you like Ruth and like Esther, which is a beautiful song. I'm not sure, but... This is the original. You should be famous and wealthy in Beit Lachem. And your house should be like the house of parrots who Tamar gave birth to Yehuda. This is only our ancestry. This is a beautiful blessing. And the whole town is giving this blessing. But notice who they're giving the blessing to. They're giving the blessing to Boaz. Roots not there. Ruth is not present. Boaz is there, he's negotiated, and now he is committed publicly to redeeming the land and to marrying Ruth. And they all bless him that the wife who comes into his house should be like, et cetera, et cetera, she had lots of kids and, and they should be famous, et cetera, and all these beautiful things. Ruth's not there, which means we've seen two opposites. We've seen a bracha given to the kala before she's even a kala, when she leaves home to go marry her husband, given by her family to her, and then we see a bracha given to the man when he's publicly made a statement that he's going to marry this girl, and the girl's not present. So each one of these things is missing something a little bit. So take a look here in Masachat Kala. In Masachat Kala, which is a Masachat one brighter, that's the whole thing. It's one of what we call the Masachat Tanot, it's a ninth century, eighth to ninth century collection of uh, of late Talmudic material, and some of it early Talmudic material, and uh, in the Masachat Tanot, Masachat Kala. We're going to talk about that. That meaning is vital for the marriage. That if a, that if you have not yet done the girl is not allowed to be with her husband. Meaning you've already done erusin, you've given her the ring, leave, God ate him to the whole thing, has been written, and yet without they're not allowed to be together. So kala without the bracha, is like a nidah hasn't, hasn't gone to the mikvah. It's a, a wild statement. But we got to figure out what's behind that also. Now notice, the the Braita asks, what's the source for brachat chatanim? And we would expect this, instead, what do we get as the source? The bracha that was given to Rivka when she left home. Odd, that's not really bracha is it? How do we even know that a woman who's been married before and is marrying for a second time, whether a divorcee or a widow, doesn't matter, that she also may not be with her husband until there's a bracha, because after all, you could say, well, Rivka was a betula. Rivka was never married before but maybe a woman who's been married already, maybe she's already had a bracha. Maybe not having a bracha doesn't prevent her from being for her husband. The answer is, they quote the at Which means that they're looking at either in a in a um, exegetical way, but perhaps it's in a utilitarian way, and I'll explain the difference. Exegetical way means we're reading the Psukim, and this is the way we're interpreting them. In a utilitarian way means the Psukim don't mean that, but we need to establish the the the, uh, the law, and we have sukim that will guide us in that direction. But so we call it a smachta, and so one way or the other, they're using pasuk number three, source number three, as the source for brachat chatanim, not source one from bereshit, from the beginning of and then source number four from root as proof that even a woman who's been married before may not be with her husband until there's a bracha, because here's brachat chatanim. To boaz, and again, as I pointed out, these cases are not like our Bechat chatanim. Matter of fact, uh, sometimes in some circles it becomes an uncomfortable moment because in order to make Bechat chatanim, for instance, at one of the meals during the week, which people are commonly called shavuot uh, but during the during the week when you have to make when make those meals, the Kala and chatan have to be sitting there, which in some circles becomes a little bit uncomfortable when they have meals that are that big; they're fully separate. And so the men are all in one room, the women are all in another room, but then comes Shavarachot, they have to bring the Kalayan. And so you have, you know, a thousand men and one girl. A little odd, but it is what it is. But here you have Bechat Chatanim with Boaz and all the men at the court, and Ruth's not there. So again, we have to try to pull all of this together and and figure out how it works. In order to do so, we have to attack it from another angle. And that is, as you're aware, we need a minyan for bichat chatanim. I don't know how many of you have had this experience. I've had it a number of times where I'll get called, usually on a Sunday morning, and saying, do you have time today about 2 o'clock? We're doing a chuppah for a couple that um, um, was married for years, but they were not Jewish. Then they converted, they want to have a proper chuppah or kiddushin, or a couple that never had a proper chuppah or kiddushin, they become observant, now they want to have something of that sort. And we need a minyan. We want to make a very quiet thing in our backyard or, you know, in the shul. And I've in that minyan. I've, I've done chupot like that. And But you need a minyan. Why do you need a minyan? You need a minyan for b'chat chatarim. You cannot say these brachot without a minyan. So the um, question is why? But here's the source for the fact that you need it. It's a mishnah in Megillah, which lists, in the fourth parak of Megillah, which lists all sorts of things that you need a minyan for. And now we're going to see a matched pair Through a lot of our literature Which should make us a little uncomfortable But we need to face uncomfortable sources In order to figure out what's really going on And that is Birchat Avelim Which is a bracha that we don't have anymore We don't practice this anymore but as a brachad that was said to the avilim during shiva, and brachat chattenim, which thank God we have lots of, and you cannot do these things pachot me asara with less than a minyan. And the tosefta, um adds one thing, good its name, brachat pachot me asara va min minyan, meaning that the Khatan is one of the ten. You don't need 10 plus the chatan. The chatan counts towards the 10. Why is that mentioned? Because in the case of the Avelim, the Avelim do not count. You need 10 besides the mourner. We have to figure out why. All right, and then the Tosefta adds, So according to to this first opinion, Berchat Chatanim is said, even at a Sudat erusin. now we don't do this anymore, but Sudat erusin was practiced for thousands of years until the Middle Ages, when a girl would become betrothed, like Rivka. There would be a feast at her father's house, and the, the guy would give her a ring, typically, or something, say, Ram and then they would go their separate ways, and then they would have however long they had, a few months, a year, maybe a few years, depending on her age, to finally have the wedding, when they would move in together. But according to this opinion, you would say berchat chatanim at the erusin. Now, we don't do that because we don't have a separate erusin ceremony. We have erusin under the chuppah. And erusin under the chuppah, we say two brachot, and the brachan erusin. And then we say berchat chatanim for the marriage. But according to this, you would say berchat erusin berchat chatanim even at the erusin and whether the meal is a festive meal of Shabbat or a regular weekday meal, but they're there. And this is one of the most well-known halachot about chatanim, that there have to be panim chadashot, meaning literally a new face. So what does that mean? That means that tonight in Toronto, they've already started, there's at least one person at that meal that was not at the wedding. Somebody new. And on Friday night, we're going to have a couple of people at the house who were not at the wedding and not at any, any of the, of the sudat Chatan till now. Shabbat lunch will have yet other people who were not at anything. And Sudash Tushit will have yet other people who weren't at anything. Every time there's at least one new person there to sort of justify Birchat Chatanim. And again, we got to see how that entire piece, how, how that entire piece works. Um... Two last pieces I want to I want to get to and then start shaping the idea. Because this is what we want to do in method of understanding halakha. Um, I'm going to step aside for a minute to talk about, if you will, the scientific method. Um, what is the heart and soul of the scientific method? Essentially. Expanding our knowledge based based on observation. So I'll I'll say something, and then I'd like you to react and tell me whether it sounds accurate or not. The scientific method is that you walk into the situation without a preconceived notion. You observe phenomena. And based on those observed phenomena, you create a hypothesis, which may explain them. And then you test the hypothesis. And if it works, you got a theory. But you don't walk in with a preconceived notion about how things are supposed to work, because then what you're likely to do is start interpreting all of the phenomena to fit your system, which means you haven't learned anything. Does that sound accurate? That's relatively, accurate. relatively. Except you skip the issue of statistics. Well, that's part probability theory, p-values, right? part of, theory, values, right. Uh, but co- part of the, the. But that's part of the observing the phenomena and the analysis. Words. Well, it's part, it's part of the testing. You te- when you test your hypothesis, then you have to you have to you, you have to lay lay down the control group, statistical analysis. But you're talking about you so- you're, ta- you're, ta- you're about social issues, not not uh, even talking. About, I mean, not, even not medical The lot out. Agree. Yeah, but, I, I agree. I mean, you can't really come up with a theory unless you've observed something to begin with. Right, but yeah, my, but my second piece on that is that if your observations are already you're watching them in order to have them fit into a picture then you're not really observing anything and everything you see you're going to already curve now sure and i'll admit it's a lot easier to do this in the social sciences which some people think is an oxymoron than to do in the hard sciences where you just you cannot pretend that the water boiled at 50 degrees now it is what it is but um a lot of people do that they'll come into a certain situation they'll see and this happens in in our world a lot, where they'll see a particular halakha, a particular comment, and they've already got a preconceived notion of what it should look like, so they'll bend it to make it fit. I don't want to do that. The proper method of learning is exactly that. We observe the halakha, from that we try to conclude what the underlying wisdom and system and message, if you will, is, and then we can identify there might be an outlier, there might be somebody who has a different approach and therefore has a different halacha. Right. And this is something that became more formalized in the world of brisk with Rab Chaim and later with the with the Briskarov and later with the Rav and Rav Lechenstein as each generation refined the method even more, but that's really what it is: taking a look at all of the information and trying to identify what the underlying thinking is behind it. So that's what I want to do to collect the information that we have. That summarize it and see if we can come up with an understanding of what it's about. Understanding we won't have a perfect grasp and that there's always going to be outliers, right? So if we have uh, two different opinions about under what circumstances you, you say, then it could be that one of those opinions represents a different perspective on the whole picture. Okay, so um, again, collecting Statements, collecting phenomena, more things to observe. All right, and more, uh, uh, how do you call it? More um, white swans, if you will. All right, to borrow from is some Taliban. All right, Tani, This is in Yishalmi, in Masachet Migila, on that Mishnah that we just mentioned. Rabbi Yirmiya Savar. So Rabbi Yirmiya suggested, Mafkin kalata kol shiva. And again, this cuts down to what the issue is. Why is it called Chatanim? And not Chatan Mafkin Kalata Kol Shiva, that we bring the Kala out all seven days. Now, by the way, we do that. The Kala is present in practice. But he's saying we have to bring the Kala out to make Berchat Chatanim. Amar Rabbi So Rabbi Yosa answers. And if you remember, Chatanim had a twin. And the twin was Avilim. All right? And you're going to see another parallel to it in a second. So Rabbi Yossi says, In other words, we have a statement that you say, All seven days. Again, it's not something we practice. But notice what, what, what his attack is. Do you think they're going to bring the mate out every all seven days? Now, when you, I want picture what he's saying. This is a reductio ad absurdum argument. The mate has been buried that's what you're supposed to do All right and so you think that we're going to bring the mate out they're gonna exhume the body every day and bring the mate there so they can say now what's the parallel why is he asking that so he said my kidon, so how do we resolve this Ma kan imo afkan imo. just like here with the we are elating with him him being the chatan. So what do we do with the Avel? We're comforting with him. And notice the language. Just like with the Avel, what are we doing? We're we're raising a memory of the bitterness of the loss. What are we doing here? We're also raising a memory of the elation of the moment. Now, things are actually starting to crystallize here. That Notice that her birchat chatanim is really aimed, for, aimed at. And I'm going to skip for a second and come back to this next source because the sugiah and the bavli actually supports this very strongly. Amar Rabbi Chelbo, this is in Ketubot Davzayin. Barzav Damarav. almana, turna We saw this already in Masachet Kala. Whether the girl has been married before or not, she needs to have a bracha. We have a statement that Almana doesn't need a Bracha. So it depends if the guy has never been married before. Right? And so the notion here is that if it's a couple that are both on their second marriage, there's no Bracha, but that's not true. Because they quote the story of Boaz, and they see it affirmatively as being about Brachat Chatanim, and the Midrashic assumption is that Boaz was already married, that he was a widower. Ruth explicitly was a widow, and yet that's a bracha. So now the way that they resolve it is as follows, just at the end of the, of the process, that uh, an almon, marrying an almana, meaning two people both on their second marriage, have one day of bracha. Or a bachur has seven days of bracha, if he marries a woman who's been married before. In other words, what drives the amount of time of birchat chatanim, the chatan? We're not concerned whether the girl's been married before. If she, Whatever the case is, every marriage needs bracha. But is the bracha one day or seven days? Meaning, is it for at the chuppah and the meal of the first day, or is it for the whole week? That depends on one thing, and that's the guy. Has the guy been married before or not? Which... If you think about it, it does two things for us. It highlights the fact that this is called Berchat Chatanim, and it all revolves around the guy. But it raises the question, why is it Berchat Chatanim, and why does it focus around the guy? And if you think about it, our very first source of Berchat Chatanim was, God spoke to both of them and said, And the second source was Dafka, the family talking to the girl. As we say in the Gabon and Igri. The roofs are breaking. Our, our understanding is crushed, it's been crushed. We're confused by everything that's going on. So I want to take you back to the source that I skipped over because it's instructive. Um and it's at the beginning of Tubot and Shali. Moshe Kin Shivati Moshe originally Moshe Rabbeinu, established seven days of celebration for a wedding and seven days of Avelu, what we call shiva, right? And the the Gemara then suggests sources for it and how many days it really is and how much, how much might there be do but notice that the, the Gemara here equates the two. So we see not only equation of the two in the functionality that they both need a minyan, and there's several other things. We saw it there. You don't have to bring the maid out, so you don't have to bring the kala out. And that parallel is very odd and somewhat unsettling. There's, by the way, another parallel, which is we only make perchat chatanim if we have panim chadashot, somebody who was not there before. And avilut, by the way, you also need panim chadashot. It's not a well-known halacha because we don't practice perchat al-relim. But here you see it not only phenomenologically, but also historically. Meaning not only that the halachot work in tandem, but also that they were originally devised and enacted by Moshe Romeinu, which makes it a Durabanan, but a Durabanan of the highest degree. Can't do better than Moshe. Moshe establishing Shivatim shivati Shivatim Avelut, going together. So we're still trying to figure out what it, what it is that's going on. So, I, in order to, to resolve this, I'd like to actually go to the language of the Brachot, take a look at what it is that we're actually saying when we say these Brachot. I'm going to jump to the vort that I have at the end because I think that it may actually help us. Here's the sugya in Tubot, in the babbling Tubot. We did it, I think, two years ago. chatanim. kol shiva. You need a minyan, and for all seven days you need b'chat chatanim. Amrihura panim chadashot. Again, you need panim chadashot. You need somebody new there who was not part of the celebration till now. My mevareh, what's the bracha? So I'm a Rav Yehuda, and by the way, I want you to see the timing here. They're asking, what is the bracha you make? And the answer comes from Rav Yehuda, which means that we're now in the end of the third century in Pumadita, and we're first getting the the wording, which means, what did they do till now? I mean, that's a question you can ask any time that you ask about what a halachai is, and the answer comes from a later chacham. what they do till now? But how come we don't have any Tariyedic sources that can tell us what the language of Berchat Chatanim is? Anybody want to suggest an answer to that? Why is it that only in the third century do we hear about what the wording is of Berchat Chatanim? Because part of that, everything was oral and not written down. This is still oral. This is still oral. Rev. Yuna didn't write anything down. It was all oral for hundreds of years, right? I mean, that's it's always a tempting take. I think that, sure, when you may be onto something, but I'm going to shift it. The answer that most people would give typically would be that they all knew Berchat Chatanim. Nobody knew it. They knew what Berchat Chatanim is. And only in this generation did there was a need for someone to clarify the words. But that's a little odd because Piton. How come Rabbi Kiva knew Birchat Chatanim so well that he didn't have to tell anybody what it was? And so did Rabbi Hura Nasi. And so did uh, Rav. And suddenly Rabbi Hura has to tell us what the wording is. The other possibility is that maybe Birchat Chatanim was a little bit more open-ended. And maybe maybe there were a range of possible ways to say the brachan. Maybe it was up to the Memvarech. And maybe only at this point did the Nusach become crystallized. By the way, we refer to this series of Sharon Brachot, but that's a misnomer on several counts. All right. And by the way, notice that the language used throughout our Sugiyot is not Birchot Chatanim, but Birchat Chatanim, Bracha in the singular. All right. So it's a little bit unusual, but how many Brachot are there here? So I enumerated it so that you'll be clear. How many Brachot are there here? <laughs> it looks like there are six. What? The six? It looks like there are six. So what's missing? Boy Pragophon. Boy pre-agafen, right? So Boy Pragophon. But Boy Pragafen isn't really part of Shevra I'm sorry, I can't say it that way because then I start laughing. Boy, boy is not part of Chatanim. Why do we have Boy Pragafen? So let me ask you this. When else do we say Boy Pragophon with something else? Kiddush and Benshin. Kiddush and Benchin, good. Give me one other example, just to round out the picture. Havdalah. Havdalah, perfect, okay. So now, Havdalah, Hiddush, Birkatamazon Hamazon, Haben, Eru are all things that we say are, and by the way, halal at Zeder, are all things that we say are te'unakos. And these things are so festive, so special, but they require a cup of wine. Have a cup of wine, you got to say, bar Pragafin. So you're doing a rusin and you're giving the girl the ring, you make a brahah, Rayot. That's such a festive occasion, it needs a coast. So you make Bray brachot, and then our Rayot. Abdallah needs a coast. You're not going to say, am You say, bar and then am And the other things you add in. All right, so the same thing here. There's six brachot, and maybe not even six, there may be five. And we add to that, prayer, prayer often because it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, so the bracha is, which is clearly just an introductory statement God created everything for his glory. And that's kind of classic for shira in Tanakh. It always starts with an introductory statement about the greatness of God without getting to the specifics of the, um, of the event, like, Ashirah, Allah, the Maikika, it's a broad statement, and then suz foroch and then the next two brachot are about the creation of man, because if we think back, berchat chatanim starts with the creation of man. A man blessing God, blessing man that man should should become fruitful, multiply in that image, populate the world. So tziotzer hadam, and then asher yatzar tadam et salom. But salom zmutav told tov, kino men binyan adiyad. That God created man is in His image, and He. He, he created from him an eternal binyan. And that goes to the story in Breshit Bet, that he, the woman was created from a part of man, in the first case of anesthesia. And um, and so from man himself, he created his eternity, because his eternity is through children. Yotzer HaAdam. As you see later in the Gemara, you'll find that when Levi, uh, in Eretz Yisrael, came to Rabbi Huda Anasi's son's Anasi's son's wedding and he made a bracha. He made how many brachot? He made five, not six. He left out one of these two. And in Bavel, they said all of them. And the difference was whether we look at these two as fundamentally different creations or one thing. Which means they're not, they're not anchored to the number seven here at all. Seven brachot. It's either six brachot or it's five brachot. Right? Notice one other thing is Levi made five brachot. They didn't say mechubit with the fourth bracha. Levi. In other words, here you make brachat chatanim. They're not our custom. Our custom is to hand them out, We mechubit as many people as possible. But what they did was brachat chatanim, singular. Bracha is take a cup. Since you're going to make, since it's festive, you make prayer, Gathen, and then you make a bracha to the chatan, the chatanim, or to the uh, involving the chatan. And you say all of these things. Okay, so what are the other three brachot? And this seems to be as disconnected as the middle verses of Lechadudi are from Shabbat. You see why I'm saying that. What are the middle verses of Lechadudi all about? They're all about Yerushalayim coming back to life. Nothing to do with Shabbat. Shabbat is the first, the second, and the last uh, verses, and that's it. The rest is all about showing. Same thing here. The uh, the barren one will rejoice as all of her children are brought together. That's the imagery in Yeshayahu and Nundalad. And then we go back to the marriage trope. So beloved friends, elate. As your Creator elated you in Gan Eden, which goes back to the midrashic imagery of that we saw at the beginning of the Shir of uh, Gan Eden, God having a wedding for Adam and Chava, and being the one who who bring, brings Chava to Adam, etc. Beautiful. And here it's notice the language Now everybody's uncle and everybody's grandfather. Who gets, who gets called up, knows this, that the, no, the second and last bracha ends and that the last bracha is By the way, you, if you look at the rest of the source sheets, you'll see that not everybody always had that nusach. Some of them had vichala in both of them. But what's the difference? means God elates the bride and groom. God elates the couple. The last bracha, he created festivity, etc., and we're going to look at this a little bit in, in a couple minutes. Very soon we should hear the sound throughout the hills of Yisholim, etc., um, the uh, the, uh, the the cities of Yehuda and the, the streets of Yisholim, the sound of uh, elating, the sound of the bride and the groom, and everybody rejoicing, which, if you think about it, brings together four and five. Because four is about Yushalayim coming back to life, and five is about elating the bride and groom. And six is about the sound of the bride and groom elating in the streets of Yushalayim, and in the whole streets of Yushalayim erupting in happiness. It's beautiful. So now we've got a few questions to take a look at in in this um, in this piece. And, and I'm going to go off the share for a moment. Um, and then we'll and then we'll talk about them together. Um the first question is of course, why is this called Birchat Chatanim? and not Birchat Chatan Bekala? Um second thing is, um, why is it that we need Panim Chanashot? Why do we need somebody new there who wasn't at the wedding or a previous celebration? All right. Um We'll stay with those. But along with the first question, this very odd common discussion in the Ushalmi of saying, well, we say Berchat Chatanim, do we have to bring the Kala out every time? He says, no, of course not, because you say Berchat Avilim and you don't bring the body out. It's a very weird kind of equation. So we have to figure out what, what is going on. The the other thing, which part of that same question, is why is it that the duration of Berchat Chatanim is totally dependent on the guy, meaning if the guy was married before or not, and not on the girl. Even though the girl seems to be the focus of the bracha because we said, kala below bracha, if a kala has not yet had bracha, then she can't be with her husband. And yet, if she's an almana, she may get one day of bracha, she may get seven days of bracha, and then all it depends on is, is the guy she's marrying, has he ever been married? It's a very strange piece. So I, in order to, to explain it, I'd like to now take a look at this piece at the end of the Shior, which again, I presented as a fort, but it's, it's more than a fort. The passage that far few people far, far fewer people know than those who know the reference to it. In Yirmiyahu Lamed Gimel, it also shows up earlier in, in Yirmiyahu in a more truncated version. But by the way, Yirmiyahu, just a pitch in for Yirmiyahu because I feel bad for Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu always gets a bad rap as being the Vihazam, the Vihatochicha, the the angry Navi, the Navi of rebuke. Uh, the passages in Paraklamed Aleph and Lamed Gimel and are just so gorgeous, so beautiful, uh, and such so comforting. Um, and other passages in Yumiao that, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a bad rap. In any case, in and alela aruchal fatim. this is Yumiao, because what God says, I'm going to bring healing to the city, to Shalom. And then they will have a hope for Shalom and Met, and that's what I'm going to reveal to them. I'm going to bring back the captivity of Yehuda, and not only that, the captivity of Israel, which is 150 years ago, that Assyria captured, and I'm going to rebuild them like the old days. I'm going to cleanse them from the blemish of their sins, which is the reason they were exiled. And I will forgive them for all the sins, and that they rebelled against me. And they will be a sign. They will be like my signal of, of glory and of, and of praise in front of the whole world. Everybody's going to learn about all the great good that I'm going to give to them. My people, everybody else is going to be afraid. Because they're going to realize these are God's people. We don't want to mess with them. The next pasuk, I didn't skip anything. Ko amar Adonai, od yishama, hazeh. It's important for us to know the pasukim. It will yet be heard in this place. It's talking to Mark Twain, Innocence Abroad. That you say that this place is dis- is destroyed, is desolate, no people, no animals which are, you say these places are desolate. They are desolate of no people. Nobody's there. What's going to be heard in these places? And this is why I, I can't sing the song without crying to realize the, the amazing era that we live in. That's what's going to be heard in these places where people are saying, it's desolate, it's dead, it's gone. God has abandoned his people, and his people's land is desolate. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to heal that land, and in this place that you say is desolate, you're going to hear the sound of rejoicing and the sound of chatan and kala, which, of course, is the sound of new beginnings. Kol omrim, hodu et adunai tzvaot. And what will everybody be saying? Give thanks to Hashem. Kitov adunai Adonai ki We recognize that line. All of them bringing korban Toda to Beit Hashem, which of course is destroyed at this point. I am going to restore the captivity and the fortunes to the land, just like in the old days. And he goes on. Yet we'll be in this place. There are going to be shepherds with their flocks throughout the land. Notice, he's giving us the whole geography of the center of the land. You're going to have people shepherding, and they'll be counting the flock as they come through the line, through the into the into the the uh, pen phrase that you may have borrowed liberally from Amos. I am going to fulfill this good thing that I have spoken about on behalf of the Jewish people. Notice how things grow. First, there's going to be the sound of, there's going to be a, re- a restoration, and there's going to be forgiveness. And then there's going to be celebration of the beginning of new, new life. And then there's going to be a return to normalcy. Shepherding the flock. And then what happens after that? What's that? In those days, I will flourish for David a a growth of, let me say, not a plant, not the word I want to write, a, a shoot of righteousness. What's that? That means a descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne this should sound familiar the Israel many people know that from the prayer for the government but this is where it comes from in those days Yehuda will be saved and your will rest will reside forever and securely and what will they refer to the city as just like the very end of Jezkel, Hashem is our tzaddik, as it were right and Hashem is our righteousness that's the nevuah. That's the great nevuah. The Gemara Brachot picks up on this in a beautiful homily, which needs to be understood. And we're going to take this to circle back and and explain the the main sticking points in the shiur. Gemara in Brachot in the first paragraph. If you're at a chatan's meal and you eat at the meal and you don't elate the chatan, you have violated five sounds. What's that? It's a wild statement. You go to a wedding. You sit down. You have the salad. You decide to wash and you have that interesting dip with the bread. And then the Chatan and Kala come out and say, oh, I'm too old for this. I don't know. Right? I'll sit at the table and wait with with And then, do uh, you want prime rib? Do you want chicken? you want fish? or you want the vegetarian thing? Right? You make your choice. Then you come over to the mouth and you leave. You just violated five sounds. You didn't get up and sing. You didn't dance in front of them. By the way, I'm sure you've all seen, and some of you have done this, people who are quite elderly and have a difficult time getting around, but they get in the middle of the circle and they gyrate a little bit. They elate the chatar and kalah. And now, if he does elate him, what's the, what's the reward? I'm sure in Levi. He gains the Torah because the Torah was given with five sounds. Now notice how the Gemara does it. It takes the five the five voices of elation and it ties it in with the five sounds of the shofar heard at Harsinai before Matan Torah. It's a wild statement. And Rabbi Avahu says it's as if he brought a Korban Todah because what's the end of this passage in Yumiao? And Rav Rachel Yitzchak says it's as if he rebuilt one of the destroyed uh, cities of Yishal, the uh, place of Yishal building, Yishalayim, because the end of that passage is Is. So amazing statements. So what seems to be happening here is that if you come to a wedding and you realize that was what what's happening here, is the rebuilding of Am Yisrael. Every wedding is a step of rebuilding. By the way, people had a very deep understanding of this in the 50s and 60s, especially especially direct survivors. Had a great understanding of this, of how miraculous it was that Jewish people are getting married in the shadow of the Shoah. But every wedding is, is a statement of continuity, a statement of, of re- restoration. In our day, the sm- I mean, it's amazing, but in any generation, it's a statement of the future. And somebody who benefits from a Sudar Chatan and doesn't realize that is like a goslin. They're taking the opportunity to be part of the revival of Jewish people and they're blowing it because they're having the stake instead of dancing. And what happens if they get it and they actually get up and dance? Then there's Ochel Torah. Because the Torah is all about a mandate for the future. And when you're relating the bride and groom, what you're doing is essentially saying, we are promoting, we are pushing, we are we are, we are supporting, we are supporting, we're giving communal support to the future, to your future that you're going to build, or what you're going to build for all of Am Yisrael. And I want to take that all backwards, not back, take it all backwards to the questions that we asked. I asked the question, why is it called Berchad Chatanim? And why is it that the duration of the bracha depends on how long, whether the chatan has been married before? And why is it that they even raise the possibility, which we don't do, which is the kaladas, they don't have to be there? Because the whole purpose of this thing is for the chatan to realize, to see, to experience how the entire community, as a microcosm of all of Israel, is blessing this marriage. And is starting this couple on a life which is part of a national statement of renaissance, of revival. You are not just a couple getting married on your own. We are putting all of our hopes on you. You are our future. You are part of the, re- of the return of Am Yisrael. And that's something that, it, that the Chatan has to be reminded of. Because let's face it, guys, the women remember that a lot better than we did. The chatten has to be reminded of that on a regular basis, and so if it's somebody who's already had that experience, so one day, so he's never had that experience, he needs a full seven days. Whether the woman has been married before or not, everybody gets but, bracha, but birchat Chatanim is something that's really generated towards the, the which is what the man is. Which is why you even have this having that the woman does not have to be there. We don't do that, but that's why it's raised. Maybe that, that that explains it the emphasis of the chatan. But mm-hmm. It doesn't explain, excuse me, it doesn't explain excluding the khala. She's excluded. Correct. But so she's not it. really excluded. In practice, we don't do that. But that's what I'm saying. Why the Shami raises this possibility that the khala doesn't have to be there? Because it's essentially focused towards the Khatan and giving him that charge. And I'll sneak back to something I said in last Wednesday's Parsha Shir, which is, that what we need consistently in every relationship, whether it's our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our Kodesh Baruch Hu, we need constant reminders of that glorious moment when he first fell in love. That's the lechtech ha That's the beautiful image that we have in this week's parsha, balotcha, of, of the Korban Pesach coming just before we travel. To remind us of that great Amazing relationship that we had, that honeymoon moment in Mitzrayim. And so that's what you need to be reminded of. So the minute that there's anybody there who was not part of the original thing, they can chime in and say, Oh, I'm so excited for you guys. And it's something that we then internalize. And then hopefully it's such an intense, powerful experience that those seven days last a lifetime. The people that people sit around on their anniversary. 30, 40 years later and said, oh, you remember the second day after we got married, we went to your aunt's house and your uncle was there and, and here he you told us stories from Europe and you remember that we were in Eretz Yisrael and we went up to Svat for a shower. It it becomes a lodestone. It becomes a, 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 a lighthouse, a beacon for a relationship. And so I believe that that's why the reason that it's called Berchat Chatanim, that's the reason it needs a minyan because it's really all of Am Yisrael blessing this Chatan and telling him, this relationship is something that we are all pinning our hopes on. We're all pinning our our we're giving the bracha. We're giving the the imprimatur of the community on. So now going back to the very beginning, the first source that we saw for Khatanim was a bracha that Akharish Baruchu gave, and that was Akharish Baruchu blessing the couple together. And that was about content. What was the content? The bracha is you should be fruitful, multiply. You should become powerful. That's one. The second is a bracha that a family gave to their daughter when she left. And that was a bracha of, you're starting a new life with a new family, or we're giving you the bracha that you should bring everything that we gave you to that new family. And then there's the bracha that we associate with Boaz, even though in the end, the Gemara rejects that as a source. But that is a bracha that the whole community gives to the guy and says, you should have powerful children And you should have famous children and you should be blessed with this woman who's coming into your house. And putting all those sources together, you get a crystallized picture of what Berchat Chatanim is really about. It's about the entire community, the entire community representing Am Yisrael, giving its boost, giving its blessing, giving its push to the Chatan. That this relationship that that they're starting now is a relationship that will go forever. And that the best payroll that we'll see about this relationship is when they host a the shemurachon for their kids, which will be, of course, the next step. So hopefully, we've had a we that's helped us uh, kind of get a sense of uh, how shemurachon works. And of course, we want to wish Roni and Ariella many, many, many amazing years together. And Mirza Shem will all be uh, able to uh, to dance at their kids' weddings. But let's not push it. They just got married yesterday. So, anyways and thank you for all of your very very good wishes and i'm glad that many of you around will be able to to um to to celebrate with us here